Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Uh, As we think this morning a little bit about what it means and what it looks like for us to be uh, connected together and think about overcoming our unmet expectations, I want to tell you that... uh, As I was thinking about what to uh, title this sermon, um, it came to me originally entitled Overcoming Expectations. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. There were a lot of expectations in this story, and they didn't quite happen. And there's probably a whole sermon just about that one idea, about having expectations that, uh, that you have to overcome. And then I thought, but that's not exactly accurate because... What we're really doing is we're overcoming unmet expectations. And then I thought, well, that's not exactly descriptive of the story because you could really talk about this in terms of overcoming disaster because this is really a catastrophic kind of story and, and that might resonate with some of us. But that seems awfully dramatic. And so I thought maybe we needed to tone that down and maybe it would have been better to talk about just brokenness, overcoming brokenness because... All of us could apply that and scale it at some level. And then I thought maybe overcoming broken hearts because all of us have known some of that pain and what that looks like and what that feels like. And then I thought maybe overcoming broken lives because sometimes broken hearts and unmet expectations and all of that. Then I thought maybe just overcoming disappointment because then that's very scalable. And then I just decided I was overthinking it and I came back to just overcoming unmet expectations. But as I think about that, I wonder if we were to really engage together this morning, if we were really to not just have you listening in whatever environment you find yourself on this Sunday morning, which is sometimes hard for us to connect, but if we really engage together, and I were to say to you, as I talk about this story about Ruth and Naomi, I wonder what that would be to you. What would be that personal expression? What would you need to talk about? Would you want to talk about overcoming expectations because you have high hopes and you need to temper that and sometimes you're thinking and dreaming way too big and maybe it's a little bit beyond what you're able to control. And, or maybe it is disappointment or maybe it really moves into that space of disaster or broken hearts or broken lives. What would it be for you Because I believe that Ruth and Naomi represent a journey that matters to us. So let me give you a little writing assignment this morning on a Sunday morning. I want to challenge you uh, with some ideas. You don't really have to write, so if you're about to turn off the feed, don't. But if I were to say to you, I'd like for you to accomplish a few things. I want you to sum up in a very few sentences thousands of years of biblical history. And then in addition to that, I'd like for you to lay a foundation touching on the most important elements of prophetic insight over those many years of history. And then thirdly, into whatever brief amount of writing you're going to do, I would like for you to offer some kind of messianic apologetic for the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Some way of supporting that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah who was to come. So just... Just those four things maybe included. Well, also I'd like for you to be clever and interesting and witty 
and poignant and educational. I'd like for all of those things to be going on in whatever you choose to write in really just a very limited amount, a, a, a couple of paragraphs really. And then in addition to all of that, I'd like for whatever you write to serve as the perfect segue between all of the history that has been and what is to come. And so if I challenged you with writing something like that, you might immediately say, yeah, I'm, I'm out. But I just want you to know that that's what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. That Matthew, in a very short collection of verses, is able to accomplish. Now, he didn't set out to accomplish all of that. He didn't set out to sum up the history, to create apologetic for the Messianic uh, title of Jesus of Nazareth. He, he didn't necessarily set out. What he set out to do was to simply gather together and write account of his own experiences of Jesus Christ and what happened in that process. But in doing so, he, he crafted an opening that has accomplished all of those things and has become very profound. And I bet by now you're thinking, I would love to know what that is. I'd like to hear that because that must be some really great, great writing. So let me read you just a little bit of it. Here it is. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nasan, Nasan the father of Salmon. Now, I'm guessing that you're thinking, <laughs> that's the part I skip when I'm trying to get to the real part of the Gospel of Matthew that I want to read. And that would be probably true. But in these 17 opening verses of what we know as the genealogy of Matthew, something incredibly important is happening. In fact, to the reader who would have originally written, read this in the Greek in which Matthew wrote it, some things would be going on that are incredibly significant, both in the structure of what is written, in the content of what is written, and in some little jokes, indicators, reminders, messianic sort of flags that he waves around so that for us, the modern reader, we kind of get left out, but it matters and it's significant. So let, let's make a few observations. First of all, would you notice that when he comes to the end of the genealogy, he talks about that there are sets of 14. There's 14 generations, and then there's 14 generations, and then there's 14 generations. And so he highlights that, and he tells us between these, you know, cataclysmic events in the history of Israel, there's 14 and 14 and 14. The problem is that there's way more than 14. So if you've ever tried to do the math, and you've tried to add that up, you're going to find out that there's more than 14 generations between those events, quite a, quite a number more. So why does Matthew then say there's 14? Well, scholars believe that what he's doing is he has a very specific message right at the outset. And the message is he wants us to think in sets of 14. And he wants us to think that way because sets of 14, I know this is math on a Sunday morning. He wants us to think that way because every set of 14 is made up of two sevens. And seven is the perfect number in Scripture. So, he, so he's saying... There's two sets of seven between these massive events, and then there's two sets of seven between these two massive events, and then there's two sets of seven between these two massive events, which if you're keeping up would mean there are six sets of seven. 
That would mean that the generation to whom he presents this gospel, the generation to whom he presents this understanding, is the seventh of the sevens, which would then indicate the time of completion, the fulfillment. And scholars believe that Matthew's subtle message in, in, in really scaling these down into sets like this is to say, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is the seventh seventh. It is the perfect generation of the seventh time. It is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And we, as the recipients of the gospel, are considered to be the fulfillment of that. The presence of the Messiah is with us. But not only does Matthew come together in this way and speak to us in these sort of coded messages, but it's also important who he includes in his genealogy as he leads us up to the birth of Jesus. It's important that we understand that, that one of the very first times in history is a Jewish genealogy that contains the lives and the names of the women in the story. And he speaks to them in very specific ways. Not only does he include women in the Bible, but he includes women who are a part of a story of brokenness. So that we have Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, who's not even Jewish. She's a Moabite. And then we have Bathsheba. And listen to this. When he calls out Bathsheba as a part of the genealogy, he identifies her as Uriah's wife. Listen. He could have called her Solomon's mother. He could have called her King David's wife. He could have called her a lot of names that would have sanitized the story. But instead, Matthew calls attention to these women, and he calls attention to the rawness of the story, to the brokenness of it, to the accountability of it, to, to the sinfulness of it. And it is as though Matthew is saying in this seventh, seventh, this time of fulfillment and completion, I feel like I'm talking genealogy or something, but in the time of this fulfillment, he's calling attention to the brokenness and the redemptive nature of the story, that this Messiah is redemptive in ways you can't begin to imagine, who has taken the stories of brokenness, stories that are ugly to talk about and ugly to tell and ugly to remember, and he throws them into the genealogy of the coming Messiah. Man, there's some stuff going on. We don't have time, but if we continued to break down these little 17 verses, we would find that Matthew, in Greek, has, con has intentionally misspelled some words. He's intentionally used the wrong names in a couple of places. In fact, three to be specific. And the reason that he's done that is because he's chosen something in the genealogy and he's allowed that name to be played with a little bit so that it would remind us of three very important things. Number one, it would remind us uh, uh, of the patriarchal ties and the prophetic voices. And number two, it would tie the story into the Psalms. And number three, it would tie it into the Torah. And so because he's used these names, which in Greek kind of give us a double entendre, he's reminding his readers that both the Psalms and the prophets and the patriarchs, the Torah, support this story of the messianic nature of Jesus. I'm just telling you, in 17 short verses that most of us consider to be boring, Matthew has accomplished an incredible, powerful thing. In fact, so powerful is this opening that the early church believed that Matthew was the first gospel written because it was the perfect segue from the story of the Old Testament into the presence of the New Testament. And so Augustine, for the, at the very beginning, put Matthew at the first of the gospel. Now, scholars now believe 
that Matthew was one of the last Gospels written, and in fact, Mark was likely the first Gospel written, but nobody has ever seen fit to move the order around because so perfect is this opening and this segue to begin to tell us the story of Messiah. It's important to think about because in this story we find mentioned a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. And we're going to talk about Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is a woman of Jewish descent from Bethlehem. She and her husband move to Moab because there's a famine in the land. And they go to Moab. And when they arrive in Moab, uh, Naomi's wife, uh, husband passes away. But that's okay. She has two sons. And those two sons marry Moabite women. And they're going to provide for her uh, a generations and, and, and a heritage and a lineage and someone to care for her in her old age. And then sadly, the two sons die without having any kids. And Naomi remembers that back in Bethlehem, uh, back in Israel, things have gotten better and the famine has passed. And she decides she's going to go back and at least be with her extended family. And she says to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she says to them, Listen, I, I absolve you of your responsibilities. I absolve you of your need to be related to me. I don't have any more sons. Even if I could get married again and have more sons, you couldn't wait long enough for them to grow up. And so you are released. Go find yourself a nice Moabite boy and create a life and go off on your own. And through a lot of tears and anguish, Orpah decides that she will return to her family, and she does. But Ruth decides that she will stay with Naomi, and a story begins to unfold around Ruth and Naomi. And in that story, I see some things that are happening. In fact, what I see are six things that I think matter to you and I as we attempt to overcome our expectations or our unmet expectations or our disaster or our broken hearts or our broken lives. Whatever it is that you fill in there, I see some things that are happening that I think matter to you and to me. The first thing I notice is this. It's that Ruth sticks to her commitments. That if we're going to overcome our disappointment, our unmet expectations, we've got to stick to our commitments. The exchange between Ruth and Naomi in this moment, are, they've become iconic. So, Ruth, uh, so Naomi looks at Ruth and says, listen, you're free to go. And, and the words, the comments are recorded for us in chapter 1, verse 13. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the door deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth was going to stick with Naomi. Her fate was going to be tied with Naomi's fate. Whatever was going to happen, it was going to happen to them collectively. And I, I think when we encounter unmet expectations, our disappointment, our disaster, or a broken heart, or a broken life, our personal failure, our first question is, do we stick to it? Do we keep going? Is it worth it? It didn't work. I'm going to do something else now. And I think Ruth and Naomi's story, it screams out to us, stick to your commitments. Stick to your commitments. Stay with it. 
Don't give up. Don't turn aside. Life takes time. God's work takes time. The miracles take time. Stick to it. Number two, if we're going to be overcoming our disappointment, if we're going to be overcoming our unmet expectations, our brokenness, we have to be honest about our pain. Ruth and Naomi are deeply committed in some very unselfish ways, but they are not in denial. They're not in denial of their pain. They're not living a fairy tale, and they're not afraid to talk about it, and they're not afraid to embrace it. They're not blaming anybody. They are returning home, and I I wish you could put yourself in those shoes, what it's like to walk back into your old hometown to see your old friends and your old family defeated and broken. It didn't work out. It didn't go well. You're not coming back a winner. You're alone. There's some bitterness. And these two women didn't come back with much hope. They didn't see a way out. They didn't see any particular kind of optimism. They weren't really even trusting for a miracle. Listen to what Ruth or what Naomi speaks in chapter 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? That's not how you want people to to react when you show up. Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, and arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was just beginning. It was a very honest search for meaning. A very honest search for purpose. Number three, if we're going to overcome our disappointment and our heartbreak and our unmet expectations, we have to stay humble enough to start again. We have to stay humble enough to start again. I'm trying to imagine walking back into that old neighborhood, walking back and seeing those old faces, and and somehow being humble enough to start again. And the point at which they're going to start again is they're going to go glean in the fields. They're going to go pick up. Now, it's, it's a little bit better than begging, but it's pure charity. That the law, that the rule said you can't harvest your field to the very edges, but you leave the edges unharvested so that people who are uh, disenfranchised and, and, and in need can come into the field and they can gather along the edges enough food to sustain themselves and their family. And that's, that's the circumstances that they're walking back into. Man, when things don't go well, when life falls apart, when relationships deteriorate, the humility, I mean, most of us go, hey, I've done that. I've been there. I paid my dues. I did my part. I worked hard. It didn't work out. I'm just done. But overcoming disappointment and overcoming failure and overcoming brokenness and overcoming broken hearts and broken lives, it involves a humility that says, I'll begin again. I'll start again. I'll start in a humble way. I'll start in a simple way, but I'll begin. I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to just stay where I am. I'm going to do something. And Ruth and Naomi had a humility in the face of what had to be overwhelming. In the face of what was no doubt a humiliation. They somehow had the ability to humble themselves and begin again in even the simplest of ways. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech 
whose name was Boaz and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, she entered a field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was a member of the clan of Elimelech, which matters because that is Naomi's clan. Number four, if we're going to overcome our brokenness, our unmet expectations, our disappointment, our failure, our broken heart, our broken lives, we have to choose service over cynicism. It's an old story. It would have been easy for Ruth, this young woman who had so much going for her, who could have chosen an easier life and a better life in a simpler way, but her loyalty of sticking to her commitments, this reality of being humble enough to begin again, to own the pain, to live in it, but be humble enough to begin again. There's a focus in her life, and the focus is not on cynicism and on all the things that failed, but on service. And, and her focus is really singular. She's going to take care of Naomi. She just finds this one thing she's going to do, and she's going to do it well, and it really begins to dominate and take over for everything else. She speaks about it. So Ruth, chapter 2, verse 17, gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one who, in whose place she had been working. The name of the man is Boaz. And, this, and Naomi said, Lord, bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our guardian redeemers, Naomi says. And it just seems to me that if you're struggling today, if you're hurting, this is one of those places where we shift from cynicism. I mean, right here in the middle of COVID, right here in the middle of August, when we thought back in March, we'd, it wasn't going to be like this. By now, we'd have answers. By now, we'd, we'd have some understanding I don't know how you're feeling. I don't know what's going on. But, but what if the shift was from cynicism and blame and assessment into service? Where you said, who can I serve? Who needs me right now? How do I shift my focus from thinking about my own cynicism and my own hurt and my own unmet expectations and my own disappointment and the brokenness of my own stuff to where I'm looking out there and saying, where can I serve? Who can I serve? Who needs me? Who in my own family? Who right here in this little tiny circle of people could I serve in a way that could bring light, could bring hope, could bring joy? I know we're stressed out. But how could we bring something fresh? And Naomi is overcoming because Ruth has a heart that says, I will stick to my commitments, I will own the pain, I will be humble enough to begin again, but I am focusing on service and not cynicism. Number five, they followed directions and fit in. Part of overcoming is following directions and fitting in. So this story takes an odd turn now. And I don't know how I feel about it. It gets weird. I mean, there's obviously some social protocol going on, and we don't know what that is. We're not privy to all of the social culture and customs. But i got to tell you, there's some covert operations. There's some secret plans going on. There, there's some plotting. 
Naomi might be in mourning, but she's using her head. She has a plan. She's, she's got some stuff happening. You, you can listen to how it unfolds, chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I have to find a home for you where you'll be well provided. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours, so tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And Ruth said, I'll do whatever you say. Now I got to tell you, there's a lot of weird things that could go on. But when your mother-in-law says to you, I want you to sneak around, I want you to put on perfume of best clothes, and then I want you to go, and then I want you to see where he's going to go lay down. And when he lays down, I want you to uncover his feet, and I want you to lay down by his feet. I, there's a part of me that would go, no, no, that's, uh, that's getting too weird. I'm just not going to go there. And I wonder what it is like for Ruth, this Moabite young woman, to say, I don't get it. It's not my custom. It's not my culture. I don't know what it is all about. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to fit in. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to follow your directions and I'm going to fit in. Seems like we're struggling with that in our world today. I'm going to go ahead and follow directions and I'm going to fit in. I'm not going to try to, be, I'm not going to, try to understand it all or figure it all out. Okay, I'm going to uncover his feet. And I'm going to lay down and he's going to tell me what to do. I don't really understand what that means. It's kind of gross. I, I don't get it. Clearly, it's secret. I'm not supposed to be there. I, I have to sneak around. I don't really get it. But listen, if I'm going to overcome the brokenness, if I'm going to overcome the uncertainty, if I'm going to over, overcome disappointment, if I'm going to overcome, I'm going to need to listen and I'm going to need to follow directions. And I'm going to need to fit in sometimes. And Ruth consents. And she goes. And she does as she is constructed. And in so doing, she has no idea. But what she's saying is, Boaz, I'm serious about the future. She doesn't understand yet. But what she's saying is, I want a mature relationship. I'm not interested in, in, in goofing around. I'm not interested in all the old things. I'm interested in what it would mean to have a hope and a future and a life. She has no idea that these symbols mean something. And Boaz, when he recognizes what is happening, he says to her, listen, you have honored me in this powerful way. You could have chased after younger men. You could have chased after other things. You could have had other interests. But what you're telling me is you're interested in the future and you're interested in maturity and you're interested in depth. And I'm going to tell you this. Because of your actions, because of your listening and following directions and fitting in, I, I'm going to advocate for you. I'm going to advocate for you. And I'm going to do the thing that I should do. And then finally, number six, if we're going to overcome our brokenness and our disappointment, we're going to have to maintain the hope of redemption. Boaz rises from that place, and he says, listen, there are some things I've got to take care of. And basically he says, here's the deal. The way this works legally is you belong to the family of one of our relatives. And so, so if somebody decides to purchase his land, that means that they're purchasing his land, but you, are, you come with it. You're going to be the wife that comes with the land, and the children that will be born out of that relationship will belong to that clan. That's a big sacrifice. 
And there's another relative in line that has to say yes or no. And so Boaz makes the needed arrangements and he sits down with the other relative and he says, Listen, Ruth and Naomi are back. I'm sure you've heard. And now Ruth wants to, you know, we need to buy the land and you have the first option. And the man says, I'm going to buy the land. And then Boaz cleverly says, And you do know that with the land comes Ruth, so you'll be acquiring a wife. And the children that will be born to that union with that land will belong to that clan. And the man says, Whoa. <laughs> I don't think I'm up for that. And with that decline, now Boaz says, very good, then I will purchase the land and I will take Ruth as my wife and I will carry on that bloodline and I will see what happens next. And out of this union comes a child. Out of this union comes an heir. An heir for Naomi, but certainly an heir for Ruth and for Boaz. And we read about it, this redemptive moment in chapter 4, verse 14. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So way back I, when we started this little talk, I said, how do you get from being this broken person of unmet expectation and a broken life to being included in Matthew's genealogy in the line of Jesus, you get there by hope in a redemptive God. That Obed becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, who becomes of the line of Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's part of the layers of the incredible story that maybe you know this already, but, but the angels who announce the birth of the Christ child do so to certain shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night and the fields in which they watch those flocks are the old fields of Boaz in which Ruth gleaned barley all of those centuries and generations before. Don't you think that these layers matter? That the whole story is just a story for you and I to have hope, to overcome our unmet expectations, our disappointment, the brokenness of our hearts, our lives, so that somewhere in that story, there's a place for you to begin again. We're going to close. I'm going to invite the band to come back, and we're going to respond to the Word. But as we do, whatever is happening in your life, would you just remember these courageous steps of Ruth? Stick to your commitments. Be honest about the pain. Stay humble enough to start again. Choose service over cynicism. By all means, follow directions and fit in. And will you maintain the hope of the redemptive story to which you and I belong? It's not an exception, it's the rule. There is a God, and God is faithful. And he sees you. And he is ultimately redemptive in the stories of brokenness and disappointment and unmet expectations. It's where he does his best work. Pray with me. God, would you lead us? 
as we move out into a week of unknowns, as we move out into a week of new things and different things, would you help us to, to listen and follow directions and fit in, do our best? And would you bless that? Will you bless broken hearts and broken lives and disappointed lives and unmet expectations? And would you remind us that, that this isn't sort of a one-off story, but the whole giant story of your grace and the coming of your son Jesus Christ is a story of redemptive hope and it's a story that belongs to this the seventh of the sevenths this generation of completion in which we live with the power of the Holy Spirit and the gift of Jesus Christ may you bring healing to hearts and lives and homes and families and be fully present we pray as we move into this week we continue to honor you hear our responses we pray in Jesus name and everybody said together Amen, and amen, and amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.